Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. We thank you so much for listening. There is really a ton to discuss this week, but you know, let's begin with some major news, at least in the NFL. And that was, uh, first off, the Carolina Panthers acquiring Baker Mayfield in exchange for a conditional fifth round pick. The Cleveland Browns finally doing what we thought they'd do all alone, and that, and that is to let go of Baker Mayfield and apparently try to make Deshaun Watson their starting quarterback. You know, you really have to hand it to Baker Mayfield over this entire process where, you know, on the field he had, he had a really rough year this year. He had 17 touchdowns compared to 13 interceptions. He had never thrown under 22 before in the first three years of his career. And that's it's the second it's the second most, it's only, actually only the third most picks he's ever thrown, but he did have a rough year. He obviously made some terrible mistakes. And his career and his future with the Cleveland Browns was obviously in question by the time this year ended. However, I think you have to give him a ton of credit. One for, I don't believe I've heard him say a bad word about the Cleveland Browns in this process. I don't think off the top of my head. And, you know, it's one thing to be traded, but it's another thing to be passed over, not only passed over as a quarterback after what he's done for the Browns, an organization that has, that has you know, been a national punchline for many years, but also the fact that he was replaced by an alleged sexual predator. All of that, the, the, that's how bad, you know, to, he doesn't come out and say, that's how bad the Browns think I am, that they replaced me with a guy who's being sued by over 20 women for some sort of sexual misconduct. And he has not... Uh, to my knowledge, at least, come out and just rip the Browns organization, which, honestly, I probably would have if I was Baker Mayfield. It, or, or any organization that would think in such a way. I'd probably say that even if it wasn't me. And I have been critical at times of the Browns making that move. But you also look at Mayfield's four years in Cleveland. The numbers are probably a lot better not just personally, but more importantly from a team standpoint, than that of any quarterback they've probably had since at least Derek Anderson. And he's the first quarterback to lead the Browns to the playoffs since, I believe it was Tim Couch back in 2002, when they reached the playoffs and lost in a shootout to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first round. And not only that, they won a playoff game for the first time. I think it's the first time they had won a playoff game, now that I think about it. Since they had, since they left for Baltimore, since the original Browns, th this team retains their history. But since the Browns became the Ravens, I think it was the first time they'd won a playoff game since then. And yes, it was in the midst of a pandemic, and there was nobody in the stadium, so it's a lot. So it's obviously a bit easier, probably in that sense, to win a game in Pittsburgh. But it's it's remarkable and. You know, the Browns have gone winless before in a season. They've had horrible, horrible seasons. They've had horrible, horrible seasons. They've had the number one pick many a time. But in Baker Mayfield's four years in Cleveland, they never had fewer than six wins. Now, to be fair, he was also injury-prone a little bit at times. So in 60 total games, he played 60 games 
And see, over four years, that's a possible 65 that he could have played. I think his, his rookie year, he's probably also held back a little bit. But uh, through 92 touchdowns in 60 games, had over 14,000 passing yards, had somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 yards each year. Each of his first three years had between 22 and 27 touchdowns. His second year was rough in that he threw 21 interceptions, but in 2020, 3,563 yards, 26 touchdowns, 8 interceptions, uh, a 62.8 completion percentage, and they went 11-5, made the playoffs, upset the Pittsburgh Steelers, and nearly upset the Kansas City Chiefs on the road in the divisional round. So I think that's quite an accomplishment. Baker Mayfield has done a lot more for the Cleveland Browns organization than any quarterback has in probably about 15 years at least. And the fact that Anderson, even though he was a very good quarterback, never made it to the playoffs with the Browns, that says something else. So he's the first Browns quarterback. I, I'm, he's got to be the first Browns quarterback in at least 20 years, if not since probably Bernie Kosar, to win a playoff game for the organization. And that is... That is quite something. It by Cleveland Browns standards over the last twenty-five years, that's a that's actually a high watermark. And I know that obviously he is not the most talented quarterback, let alone player, to come out of that 2018 draft. He would not be the number one overall pick in a redraft. He would not be the number one overall quarterback. He would not be the number two overall quarterback in a redraft. However, I think he should be appreciated by the, by the people of Cleveland for what he did for that organization. And it's, I think it's rather unfair the way he's being forced out. Meanwhile, that's not an awful deal for Carolina to only give up a fifth rounder for a potential starting quarterback. And a team that I think took a big step backward this year but still has great potential. A Carolina defensive line that that seemed to have improved, an excellent receiving core. They looked like just a they looked like just a better, deeper roster. They did take a big step back last year without Teddy Bridgewater. They took a big step back after the first three weeks and somehow regressed despite a great start from Sam Darnold. So now there will be probably another QB competition. It's going to be interesting to see how that works. But good for credit to Baker Mayfield that he could find his way out and get a, a good opportunity. Not a lot of starting quarterbacks get a great second opportunity like the one he has right here. So we'll see what happens there. And the other piece of interesting NFL news this week, this is off the field, but Sandra Douglas Morgan was named president of the Las Vegas Raiders. She is the first black woman hired to that position in the history of the National Football League. First team president ever hired within the NFL to be an African-American woman. And that's another another great mark for the Raiders organization when you consider how open and welcoming they were last year to Carl Nassib when he came out. And again, I had mentioned you know, last, uh, with Carl Nassib that you know the raiders have have had such a gritty hard-nosed tough organization 
and obviously it can be very difficult to it's a very vulnerable situation at times unfortunately because of so many things that have happened in our history that it can be a very vulnerable situation to come out of the closet you don't really know how it will be received and the raiders were so open and accommodating and on top of that the fact that they are hiring someone like Sandra Douglas Morgan who is a a trailblazer in this position it's another it's another great sign that even plays against some of that raider mentality that that mentality of you know sometimes you know we don't care even like we like to be the villain but it's a, it's a a very very nice move and hopefully it means a lot more for african americans not just women but african americans in general or you know just non caucasians minorities in general when it comes to the front office because you know we know there's been a lot of discussion regarding the Rooney rule and a, a lot of hirings there was a whole thing with you know uh, Brian Dable and Brian Flores and Bill Belichick this past offseason and so you know, that's a, a promising sign i would say especially for one of the premier organizations one of the great historic organizations within this league we move on here to probably the most prolific story of this week, and that's the whole NHL free agency period opening up. So there is a lot to discuss, and I am sure by the time I am done here, there will be far more. I am recording this on Wednesday, July 13th. Just want to get that out there. But there is a lot to report already, and that's also not just in terms of signings and extensions, but some trades a promotion, and a retirement. So let's just get it underway here. We begin with the situation between the Colorado Avalanche and the New York Rangers. I'm actually going to try to link some of these signings and trades together between teams because it's very interesting. So for one thing, the New York Rangers trade Alexander Georgiev to the Colorado Avalanche in exchange for two third-round picks and a fifth-round pick, which I think is a very fair deal, a pretty good deal for the Rangers, actually. And they dra- they draft quite well. Colorado will get a goaltender who will compete, presumably with Paul Francois, for the starting job. As Darcy Kemper has signed a five-year deal with the Washington Capitals. More on that in a moment. But Georgiev was a guy who kind of came in at the end of Henrik Lundqvist's career in New York, but then Igor Shosturkin emerged and played so well that he earned the starting job. Georgiev, uh, among Ranger fans that I know that I know of, of course I know a lot of Ranger fans in this area, but Georgiev was the subject of, of some criticism at times, but his ceiling is is pretty strong. He, he is capable he is definitely capable of being a starting goaltender in this league. The problem is he was you know he struggled at times. The the lack of playing time probably did not help him and he got the lack of playing time because he was playing behind arguably the best goaltender in the National Hockey League right now. This year definitely was the best goaltender in the National Hockey League, as proven by winning the Vezina Trophy. That was Igor Shosturkin. But Georgiev is definitely a fine goaltender. He's he's risen, risen through a very deep, a very deep Rangers goaltending system. 
that has, you know, that was behind Henrik Lundqvist, who I'd argue again is perhaps on the Mount Rushmore of goaltenders all time. He played there for 15 years. He was the starter there for 15 years, and then it was just a quick transition, really, to Shesterkin. So Georgiev will get some playing time. They, he might even platoon with Fransos, assuming he'll be back. But it's a good deal for the Rangers to get all of that back, and the Rangers, in turn, get, I think, a quality backup goaltender from whom they, whom they learned a lot this spring, and that's Louis Domingue. We'll talk about him more in a moment. But the Rangers do sign him to a two-year deal. Now, back to Darcy Kemper. Darcy Kemper, I thought, was kind of the missing piece for the Colorado Avalanche. And I believe me, this is not like when they tra- went out and traded for Patrick Waugh. This is nothing like that. But I think they needed a more capable goaltender with some postseason experience who could perhaps steal a period, steal a game. He was injured for a good portion of this postseason and down the stretch of the regular season as well. He did not have to make a ton of saves on on the on any given night, but he made some big saves at times. And you know, at, you may forget Game Six of the final was a very defensive outing. It was a two to one Colorado victory. Darcy Kemper, you may forget, stood on his head in the first period of Game Four, which might have been the turning point of the series. The Lightning were down two games to one in the series. They had just blown out the Avalanche in Game 3. They dominate the first period of Game 4 at home, but Darcy Kemper made, I think, 17 saves, if memory serves me correctly. 17 saves on 18 shots limited them to a 1-0 lead when it very well could have been 3 or 4 nothing. The Avalanche eventually come back to win the game in overtime 3-2, that goal by Nazem Kadri. They lose Game 5 at home, but they win Game 6 in Tampa by a, a mere score of 2-1, I think Darcy Kemper meant a lot more to that organization than some people think. I think he's an underrated goaltender. I, again, will mention that I think the Avalanche decided to get him because of the way he performed against them in the bubble, at least in part, because of the way he performed against them in the bubble when he carried a a not-so-good Arizona Coyotes team on his back to a three-games-to-one series victory over the Predators in the qualifying round and then even stole a game from the Avalanche in the second round, making, make, having like 30 save, 40 save games uh, despite losing. So, you know, I, I think a quality signing here for Washington. Uh, the Capitals, who, uh, since Braden Holpe left, I think before and after Braden Holpe's really nice long tenure in Washington where they won the Stanley Cup, they've had a rotating just a rotating kind of mess of goaltenders. Well, they've had some quality guys, but not really guys who did the job aside from Holpe, where they had Semyard Varlamov for a time. I believe they had, I could be wrong, I want to say they had Yaro Halak. They've had Vitek Vanacek. We were unsure what he was really going to be doing. Samsonov. Why do I want to say Peter Morazic was a capital? I could be wrong. I could just be mixing up with Carolina. But the Caps have had a lot of different guys. And Braden Holpe was the only constant in goal for them for a, a very solid team over the last, you know, since Alexander Ovechkin came into this league in 2005. And on to, you know, Nicholas Backstrom, John Carlson, 
TJ Oshie, maybe Evgeny Kuznetsov, Tom Wilson, I guess, but a bunch of those guys that you could throw in there. But goaltending has not always been their strongest suit, aside from the, what, seven or so years, a decade or so with, with Holtby. Before then and after that, uh, it's been a struggle. But this could be a big signing for them, a team that, I, I, a bit to my surprise, I thought gave the, the Panthers a run for their money in the first round and very well could have won that series. They had a huge lead. It was Game 5, I believe. They had a 3-0 lead in Florida in a 2-2 series. And if they hold on to that, perhaps they, they win that series in 6 or maybe 7, advance to the second round. And you never know what happens from there. You really don't know because Florida even had an opportunity with Tampa Bay at a time. So Washington, maybe they can hold on for a little longer with that core, with Ovechkin, with Backstrom, a little younger with Carlson and with Oshie. But maybe a guy like Kemper can really revitalize that team. Okay, so as I mentioned, the Rangers did agree with Louis Domingue on a two-year deal. Louis Domingue had a 2.41 goals against in 22 appearances in the regular season, played with the Pittsburgh Penguins last year, most notably had to come in for Casey DeSmith, who was already backing up Tristan Jari in Game 1. By the way, Penguins have adjusting Casey DeSmith to a two-year deal, showing their obvious confidence in him. I, I think he had one of the better goals against or, or perhaps save percentages, despite only playing that one game in this postseason. The... Louis Domingue came in, I believe, in overtime of Game 1 of what ended up being a triple overtime win for the Penguins. They forced that series to seven games. They had a three games to one lead, but it is not Louis Domingue's fault they lost that series. They were not great defense. Neither team was good defensively, I thought, in that series. But the, the Penguins included... Louis Domingue made, made a lot of high-quality saves in that series to keep them in it. He made, I think, an especially high-quality save in game, or a, a number of high-quality saves in game three against the Rangers, who had come back to tie the game, uh, who I think had come back from, correct me if I'm wrong, I want to say f- come back for down 4-1 and tie the game at four. The Penguins kill off this huge power play, big opportunity, and then eventually go on to win the game and eventually go up three games to one in the series. So Louis Domingue, of course, had been eating the, I think it was, was it spicy pork? I th- as the emergency, goal, as, as the backup goaltender, if not the emergency, no, as the backup goaltender for Pittsburgh in game one in overtime, somehow comes in, they somehow win the game, and that, kind of like Darcy Kemper going to Colorado, except, you know, I, it's highly unlikely Louis Domingue will get the starting job, that's kind of a point where you see your opposition and you think, we could bring that guy in. That that guy showed us a lot of confidence. So that was a big one. And, and it's funny, too, because they also signed Yaroslav Halak to a one-year, $1.55 million deal. Yaro Halak, who was a quality goaltender, has kind of rotated as a backup and a starter over his career, played very well with the New York Islanders, played very well with Montreal. People forget Carey Price was hurt when Montreal went to the conference final in 2010. On the back of Yarrow Halak, a team that had upset the Capitals in the first round, upset the Penguins in the second round. And so that's a rather good signing. We'll see who's going to be the second goaltender for that team and, and you know who will be the third or if they'll cut somebody. Rangers made a couple more huge deals. They signed Vinny Trocek, 
a very sought-after player. They lure him away from the Carolina Hurricanes to sign him to a seven-year deal worth $39.375 million. That is honestly not an awful deal for the Rangers. That's a little over five and a half a year, which I think is rather reasonable for a guy like Vinny Trocek, a guy who can play on multiple lines, who is a better better at face-offs, something at which the Rangers have struggled for many, many years. He's a guy who can score goals. He has 150 goals over 10 years for his career. He can be a kind of second-line guy or he can be a good depth piece as well. That, I think, is a very good signing, a very strong signing. And that's even bigger because the Red Wings have signed Andrew Kopp, one of two guys, the two big forwards the Rangers acquired, or two big offensive forwards the Rangers acquired before the deadline. So signing Vinny Trocek, that, that's a great move, but especially to get him away from a division rival in the Carolina Hurricanes, a team that they narrowly defeated in the second round this year. So that's an interesting... And maybe, honestly, perhaps the most important deal the Rangers made out of all of them was trading Patrick Nemeth. I thought Patrick Nemeth was their biggest weakness this year, was just abysmal at times from a defensive standpoint. He's not an offensive defenseman, and he certainly did not atone for that on the back end. I could give him a scathing review, but I, I, I will try not to go any further. But he had a very, very tough year. They trade him a second rounder in 2025 and a conditional draft pick to the Arizona Coyotes in exchange for defensive prospect Ty Emerson. So Ty Emerson has not played in the NHL yet. He is, by all accounts from what I've seen of him, a rather defensive defenseman. He averaged about a point every three games or so. I think it was 34 points over 101 games at Wisconsin, a high-quality program. He was a captain there in his junior year, I believe. If anything, he scores. He's a bit of a goal scorer. Was you know a pretty good goal scorer for a defenseman in his freshman year, but finished second in the. I think it was second. It was either second on the team or second in the Big Ten in shot blocks, and he was top thirty in the country in block shots over his last year at Wisconsin. So I think the fact that they got anything for Patrick Nemeth, even if they had to throw in a couple of picks, one of them a higher pick. That is, I think, a very good deal for the Rangers, and I think they've gotten rid of their biggest weakness now in Nemeth. So going back to Colorado, Valeri Nachushkin signs an eight-year extension worth $49 million, just over six a year. Pretty good for a guy who scored nine goals this postseason, and a guy who was a good player in Dallas but did not mold as well with the organization, has grown so much, grew so much during that postseason with Colorado as what turned out to be more than a secondary goal scorer. He really emerged. Guys like him, Nazem Kadri, even though we knew he was a strong player already, but guys who were good, you know, believed to be more secondary scorers, really were primary sources of offense during this postseason. And so to secure him is big for Colorado to secure that core. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about a team that's made, in my mind, some questionable decisions this summer, and that is the Chicago Blackhawks. I thought that they were in the midst of... I thought they were coming close to the end of their rebuild. 
with guys like Alex Dabrinkit, guys like Kirby Dock, number of young guys. I mean, they went out and signed Seth Jones to, what, an eight-year deal, I think? It seemed like they were making decisions to become a contender again within the next couple of years. But now they've gone into re- seemingly gone into rebuild mode before they could even before they can even finish this rebuild. The Chicago Blackhawks trade Alex DeBrinket to the Ottawa Senators for a first round pick and a second round pick this year, a third round pick in 2024. That's that was the deal, which is rather reasonable considering he only had a, a year left on his deal. It's a good return, but I don't know. I'm rather surprised that they don't, I guess they don't think they have the money. I don't know. He has a year left on a three-year $19.2 million deal. He finished with a career-high tying 41 goals this year and a career-high 78 points. I don't quite get this deal. Dabrinkit was becoming the best young player they had. Again, the Blackhawks have made some strange deals since they last won the Stanley Cup. Don't I, I just go back to them trading Artemi Panarin when that could have extended their dynasty a few... I genuinely think that could have extended their dynasty a few more years because he's such a transformational player and provided such help to guys like Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taze who... Uh, apparently are not waiving their no-trade clauses. The team will not ask them, reportedly. I don't know. So I, I don't get what is happening in Chicago. Uh, Dabrinkit also had a career-high 78 points this year. It's Ottawa is perhaps mortgaging their immediate future by trading a first and a second, but they look like a team that improved a little bit this year. They're in a, in a mode that they can win. They can make runs in the next couple of years, perhaps. They look a lot better. The Blackhawks trade a, another player, another solid young player, to Eastern Canada. That is Kirby Dock. They traded him to the Montreal Canadiens in exchange for the 13th and 66th overall picks. Again, good return. Montreal had sent Alexander Romanov and the number 98 pick to the Islanders and turned that number 13 pick along with the number 66 pick, into the into Kirby Dock. So Montreal doing a little bit of magic. It's weird how some of these organizations are almost in a rebuild, but think they're close to winning the Cup at the same time. It's very, very strange. It's a very, very odd situation, and things are so fluid right now in free agency. Meanwhile, the Montreal Canadiens also made a splash at the draft. A really cool ceremony as the Habs picked first at home at the Bell Center. It was a, a quite the ceremony with Mike Bossy's family and Guy Lafleur's family being on hand. Um, very emotional. I also had forgotten that, you know, Bossy you don't think of as a, as a French name necessarily, but I had forgotten that they are, they were both from Quebec. And so a very emotional evening. The Habs, again, an emotional evening in that the place was a madhouse when Marty San Louis came out. 
the the finally named the the permanent head coach of the Montreal Canadiens, and he has such deep ties to that city, being a, a native of Laval, a suburb of Montreal, that just beloved within the organization, beloved within the city, despite the fact that he never actually played for them. So something, and he went to the University of Vermont, which is not Montreal's not that far from the border. So that was something really really cool. I, I enjoyed the draft. They also went nuts for Marty Brodeur. That was an, because again, Montreal area native. Something that was just really really cool. So something cool to see. But the Habs, in turn, with the number one picked, number one pick selected Uri Slavkovsky, a left hand, a left winger, a left-handed shot, somehow the first ever Slovakian player picked number one in the NHL draft, and that's something because they have had a lot of really good, that's that's one of the better hockey-producing countries, one of the better player-producing countries, I would say. He is supposed to be a puck possession guy, really good puck possession guy. He can drive toward the net, so he's got to be pretty physical, He's a good facilitator and a goal scorer, a very versatile player offensively. Again, can play on the wing. So it's a guy who should make a difference for Montreal. We'll, we'll see how it works. There was some trepidation and some question as to where they would pick. I believe Kent Hughes said that it was that morning that they finally definitively decided that they would be taking him. But they ultimately do. And we'll see what happens for Montreal. Uh, speaking of Quebec, actually, another Quebec native, Marc-Andre Fleury. It's funny, I had heard, heard a rumor that he was going to be signing a one-day contract just to retire with the Penguins this summer. Not the case. He signs a two-year, $7 million deal to remain with the Minnesota Wild. He can retire after one year with no cap hit on the second year. So it is a moderate risk. I'd say $3.5 million a year. It's not a terrible risk, pretty good reward for Minnesota. And again, that's a team that I thought was going to beat the St. Louis Blues in the first round, but they still have some things to work out. They have some things to tool. Minnesota Wild could be one of the teams of the future, though, and Marc-Andre Fleury is one of the best postseason goaltenders, let alone goaltenders in general, uh, of all time. The Maple Leafs, in turn, acquired Matt Murray, Flurry's former backup, and then eventually a guy who surpassed him in Pittsburgh. They acquired Matt Murray, a third-rounder next year, and a seventh-rounder in 2024. Ottawa, in turn, will pay the Leafs one-fourth of Murray's salary. They will receive future considerations. I don't know what that's going to mean at that point. I don't know. Obviously, the Murray signing, I guess, was a, was a bit of a failure. It was good in thought. A guy that really played well. I thought probably should have won the Conn Smythe Trophy. I I argued that Matt Murray or maybe Phil Kessel, maybe even Martin Jones should have won the Conn Smythe in 2016 for Pittsburgh. But a guy who really stepped up in multiple postseasons for the Penguins and played a much better, much bigger role than people think. But ultimately let down behind a you know a weaker, less advantaged roster in Ottawa. The Maple Leafs, in turn, also ink Ilya Samsonov to be presumably Murray's backup, I guess, or, or the, perhaps they'll compete. They ink Samsonov to a one-year, $1.8 million deal. 
that's pretty good money for a guy who was at times a starter in Washington. So the, the Leafs, again, don't have a definitive number one, but it is a still a significant step and, and a guy who's played very well in the postseason. The Leafs have also signed uh, Nikolai Obey-Kubel to a one-year, $1 million deal. That's big because it's a guy who's won the Stanley Cup before. I don't know if they've had any Stanley Cup winners on Toronto in recent years, but a guy who has won before that can make a big difference in the dressing room, even if he wasn't a number one guy for that organization. Obey-Kubel is a good player. To get him for a million dollars a year is very reasonable, and that that's that's a big difference, I think. The Wild, after re-signing Fleury, traded Cam Talbot to Ottawa straight up for another goaltender, Philip Gustafson. So that's quite the move for the Senators. Cam Talbot, I think, is an adequate goaltender and definitely a starting capable goaltender in this league. Played a bit in the postseason for Minnesota, as did Fleury. Kind of an awkward situation, but... We'll see what he does in Ottawa, a team that's really tended to retool, as they've also signed Claude Giroux to a three-year, $19.5 million deal. That's six and a half a year. Claude Giroux, another Quebec native, grew up just across the border in, uh, in Quebec. A lot of people might not realize that Ottawa actually is, I think, essentially a multilingual city, as it's actually pretty much on the border with Quebec on the Ontario side, but Giroux scored 65 points this season with the Flyers and then the Panthers after being traded, led them to the, sec to the second round. You could argue he is maybe the second best player in the Flyers' history behind Bobby Clark. You can honestly make a very good argument for that. And he's definitely been the best player they've had in the last 20, 25 years or so. But for Ottawa to get him... They've got a guy who's been in the Stanley Cup final, has experience, has great skills still, and has, has a lot of veteran leadership for this organization. It, it helps legitimize that roster. The Detroit Red Wings acquire Ville Husso from the St. Louis Blues for a third-round pick. Not bad. Husso was pretty popular down the stretch for St. Louis. Crumbled a bit in the postseason. Again, was facing a, a much better Colorado Avalanche team. I thought Bennington should have been in goal already, but he does go to Detroit, signs a three-year extension, third-round pick. That's not bad either way. So Jordan Bennington should stay in net for St. Louis. The Red Wings get a potential starting goaltender, or probable starting goaltender, really. Another huge deal for them, they sign Andrew Kopp to a five-year, 28.125, if we're getting down to specifics, million-dollar deal. Andrew Kopp played very well for the Winnipeg Jets, was great for the New York Rangers down the stretch. There was a lot of hubbub that they might sign him, uh, along with Frank Vetrano, a couple of guys who, who were big additions at the deadline. Kopp, a guy who scored, I think, five or six goals in the playoffs for the Rangers, was very crucial at times for the organization, could, could win some draws. And so the Red Wings now have a guy with a little bit of playoff experience, a lot younger and not as much skill as Giroux, but it's another organization that's starting to step up and make a little bit of a splash. That's not an awful deal either at five points, a little over 5.6 a year. Carolina Hurricanes lost seemingly a lot of guys they've lost. We mentioned 
Trocheck, and they've also lost Ian Cole and as well as Brendan Smith. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But they trade Tony D'Angelo. They've lost like half their defensive core. They trade Tony D'Angelo and a seventh rounder to the Philadelphia Flyers for a fourth rounder this year, a third rounder next year, and a second rounder in 2024. Not an awful exchange, save perhaps for the fact that D'Angelo had you know maybe a career year in what I think only his I think only his first year in Carolina seemed like he could be the guy for the Hurricanes made a huge difference along with Jacob Slavin but the fact that they would trade him that quickly maybe says something about his actual off ice personality his antics gotten to he's gotten into a lot of trouble for multiple reasons that's what got him cut from the Rangers it's, he's been alleged to have done some, or been involved with some questionable people, but he is ultimately traded to the Philadelphia Flyers. D'Angelo, actually from Sewell, New Jersey, which is not, I think it's, I think it's might be central if not South Jersey, not far from Philadelphia, so kind of a homecoming for him. And we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, the fact that he's also going to have to mesh with John Tortorella. That's going to be utterly fascinating, watching those two guys together. So I'd, I'd just like to have a camera permanently fixed within the Flyers training facility this summer and then on the bench and in the in the locker room. I really hope, oh boy, I, I wish hard knocks, I wish they had a hard knocks for hockey and that was, I really wish they had a hard knocks for hockey for the Flyers this year because John Tortorella gives some great sound bites. So that should be a really, really interesting one. Nashville Predators ink Philip Forsberg, who have been rumored to perhaps leave. They ink him to an eight-year extension. The money, is last I saw, was undisclosed. But uh, Forsberg would have become a free agent today, as a matter of fact, the July 13th, as I record this. Set career highs this year in goals, 42, assists, 42, and points, 84. And he set career highs in his 10th season. You know, I was. it's funny, I was talking to my friend, and broadcast partner Anthony DiPaolo, and he was talking about how hockey players kind of peak, tend to peak at age 24, which I find rather interesting because I, I, I always think of baseball, I always figured 28 to 32, I always probably figured that for, for other sports, but hockey, you also remember these guys come out younger. And so for it's almost an anomaly for Forsberg to set these career highs in his 10th season. But really remarkable. He's been the face of the organization for, for quite a few years now. It puts him on pace to play 18 years in Nashville. He is first in franchise history with 220 goals, fourth with 469 points, first with 29 playoff goals, 53 playoff points, and he also led the Predators to the 2017 Stanley Cup final. He is fifth and franchise point shares behind four pretty strong players. Pecorine, I think a future Hall of Famer and probably the best player in the history of the organization. Roman Yossi, who was a finalist for the Norris last year, maybe should have won. He's been a, a finalist, been a top 10 guy in Norris voting many a time. Shea Weber, one of the great players in the history of the organization. And Tomas Vokun, Thomas Vokun. So pretty significant. And, you know, I, I thought about it. Over the years, the Predators have... Let go of a lot of big guys in Shea Weber, Ryan Ellis, 
David Legwand, Martin Erat, Ryan Suter, Kimo Timonen. And they're finally committing, albeit a couple of those guys I will say were past their prime by the time they let them go, but still, they are, the Predators are finally committing to guys like Forsberg and Roman Yossi, the way they committed for so many years to Pecorine, despite a really small to mid-market status. That it's something very promising to see for the Nashville Predators. The Pittsburgh Penguins, meanwhile, give Ricard Raquel, this was kind of surprising money for me, six years, $30 million. They give him a $5 million average extension. I thought that was a bit surprising, especially considering they signed, they did somehow, somehow they found the money to bring back both Chris Letang and Evgeny Malkin. Malkin for a four-year, $24.4 million deal. And, yeah, despite the rumors, credit to the Penguins, as right as free agency starts, they lock him down and perhaps make him a career Penguin, as that would put him at 19 years with the organization. Chris Letang, at the end of his deal, would be 41 years old. So, I, I don't know. I've said I, I think the Penguins should try to break down a little bit, but obviously Crosby, of course, but if, but in addition, Malkin and Latang, three guys who mean so much to the organization that it seems they're going to try to play out their careers with the organization. Malkin would be at the end of a 19-year stretch with Pittsburgh if he were to play that entire four-year deal. So, I don't know. It, it's surprising, though, but they because... People don't realize the Penguins have not won a playoff series in four years, and they have not been to, they have not been out of past the second round in five. But again, still a consistent playoff contender, and we'll we'll see what they do to reinforce those players. Evander Kane resigns to a four-year, twenty and a half million dollar deal. With the Edmonton Oilers, say what you will about his off his his off ice antics, his or it's more than antics, really, his alleged criminal activity, his alleged abusive relationship with his estranged wife, his the allegations that he threw games and has a gambling problem. Not to say any of it's true, not to say any of it's untrue, but the fact that so much of that came out, and yet he still scored, I think, the most goals of any player in this postseason, despite getting knocked out in the conference final. The Oilers gave him the money. They gave him a little over five a year. They put their trust in him. It's quite the quite the investment for a guy who has really been accused of doing some very questionable and very unique things off the ice. But he's a guy who showed up in the postseason for Edmonton and gave them that additional goal scorer to to really complement such facilitators and great overall players like McDavid and Dreisaitl. The Oilers, in addition, signed Jack Campbell to a five-year, $25 million deal. 
Campbell posted a career high in wins with the Maple Leafs this year, had a breakout season, but the, the Leafs were still trying to figure out their goaltending situation, as have the Oilers with Mike Smith, who was the definition of inconsistent in this postseason, making remarkable saves, but then also giving up some just really bad goals. But they get some youth. They sign him for $5 million a year, and the Oilers, maybe they have their missing piece. Calgary Flames, who apparently have been told by Johnny Gaudreau that he will not return, and it's, it has nothing to do with money, have signed Kevin Rooney to a two-year, $2.6 million deal. I can tell you watching him on both sides of the Hudson here that Kevin Rooney is a fine player. A fine player with the Devils. Good third or fourth line guy with the Rangers. And just a, just a good all-around player. Guy who came out of a, a great, great program at Providence. He's, he's worked well in this league, and he's a good depth guy for Calgary. Maybe they'll try to play more to their depth now that Gaudreau is on his way out. The Devils have made an interesting move. They've signed Brendan Smith to a two-year, $2.2 million deal. Brendan Smith, who's played you know, strong defensive defenseman. He's a, he's a good... Uh, He's a very tough, very physical player and who has actually tended to play forward at times if necessary. Was in Detroit, was with the Rangers, was with Carolina this past year and made a difference. The Devils getting him for 1.1 a year, you know, that's a good deal. He's a bit reminiscent of old Devils when they were a very, very defensively structured organization. And that's kind of what they needed. They need a good defensive defenseman who's got some playoff experience now to uh, to aid a, a team that's very, very strong offensively already but just needs some help on the back end. They also trade Pavel Zaka to the Bruins in exchange for Eric Halla that maybe to clear up cap space for Gaudreau. Not sure. Halla's a guy with some playoff experience with uh, Boston, with Minnesota. Still a good player. Pavel Zaka had not really lived up to the expectations that came with guys like Hughes or Sharon Govich, Jesper Bratt, Boquist perhaps. So, but, but the Bruins do, do still good, get a good young player who can get a fresh start. The Lightning sign Ian Cole, another ex-Hurricane, now to a one-year $3 million deal. That's They might have overspent a little bit, but it's a guy who's a good defensive defenseman, bit of a scrapper, at times at least, and has a lot of postseason experience with Pittsburgh. But they also secure the core. They sign Mikhail Sergachev, Anthony Sorelli, and Eric Chernak, all young, strong pieces of that Lightning core, to eight-year deals. So Tampa has been able to, to hold on to their guys. I haven't seen the financial aspects of the deal. But eight-year deals, locking up those guys for that long. Sorelli scored a lot of key goals in this postseason. A couple of big goals in the final against Colorado. And so uh, get, getting those three guys, especially two really strong physical defensemen like Sergachev and Chernak, that is huge. The Blues, Inc. Robert Thomas to an eight-year, $65 million extension. Finished with a career-high 77 points this season. Won the Stanley Cup back in 2019. You may remember he actually 
took a shot off the post in Game 7 of the Central Division Final against the Dallas Stars. Pat Maroon buried it in double overtime, buried the rebound off the shot off the pipe on the faceoff, as a matter of fact. So Thomas got the assist on that one. He's really emerged as a stronger top-line guy along with Jordan Cairo. Now that the, the the some of that 2019 team has departed, I would say Alex Petrangelo most notably, but the he, he's been able to take a much bigger role within the roster and within the organization. So very, very key there to get him for a little over eight a year. The Canucks signed British Columbia native Curtis Lazar, guy's got experience in Ottawa and you know, a few other places. Three years, $3 million total, so good deal there. And th- then a couple of things I'd like to discuss outside of free agency. One, Joe Sackick wins GM of the year and in turn is promoted, in turn is mo- promoted to team president. Joe Sackick, of course, a career member of the Colorado Avalanche, or at least uh, in- including their time as the Quebec Nordiques has helped mold this organization over the last, you know, better part of a decade, found the right coach in Jared Bednar, and built from McKinnon, Landeskog, all of these guys into a Stanley Cup winning organization, and will take the next step and retain more control within the organization. The other thing... Duncan Keefe retires after 17 seasons in the NHL. I would think undoubtedly a future Hockey Hall of Famer. Three-time Stanley Cup champion with the Chicago Blackhawks. Won the Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP in 2015. Scored the game-winning goal in Game 6 of that Stanley Cup Final to win the series. Won the Norris Trophy twice in his career as the league's best defenseman. This year... Played with the Edmonton Oilers, played 16 years in Chicago, won with Edmonton, reached the Western Conference Final this season for one last run. He will not finish out the contract, but he had signed a 13-year, $72 million deal with the Chicago Blackhawks late in 2009. And to think they got a Hall of Fame defenseman and locked him up for... About five or five and a half, six million dollars a year, even at that time. That is one of the best investments the organization has ever made, because they had not won the Stanley Cup yet. 2009, they made it to the to the Western Conference Final and lost to the Red Wings. That's also how long ago that was. The Red Wings were still in the Western Conference, but the Red Wings, the Blackhawks, had not won the Stanley Cup in this era yet. They were still in the midst of what would eventually be a 49-year Stanley Cup drought. And lo and behold, along with Jonathan Taze and Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith would, be pro- would prove to be probably one of the three biggest parts of that core. You know, alongside guys like Brent Seabrook, Patrick Sharp, later on Corey Crawford, uh, Marion Hossa, a number of huge guys, but really just a... a a really smart move by the organization back then. For his career, Keith, not exactly a point-per-game player, but over 1,256 total games, he finished with 106 goals, 540 assists, 646 total points. That is 
a little over half a point a game. 1,192 games played with the Blackhawks. That is second in franchise history only to Stan Mikita. He is sixth in franchise history in assists, 10th in points, and 7th in playoff points. Was named to the NHL 100 in 2017, the league's 100th anniversary, their 100 greatest players. He was a Canadian Olympic gold medalist, and he has the most point shares by a defenseman in franchise history, a great organization that includes Doug Wilson, well, even more recently, guys like Brent Seabrook. But you go back to Chris Chelios, again, a guy who kind of splintered off his career with Montreal and Detroit as well. But you know, Doug Wilson, Pierre, I believe it's Pilot or Pilot. I, I'm not, I've never quite understood. I've only seen it, never really heard it. But a number of Hall of Fame players within that organization. He has 107 point shares. That's sixth overall uh, out of any position within the organization behind five guys who are either in the Hall of Fame or are going to the Hall of Fame. Tony Esposito, Stan Makita, Bobby Hull, Patrick Kane, and Glenn Hall. That's great, great company. We move on to baseball for a moment. One piece of news that actually came out today, the Toronto Blue Jays fire their manager, Charlie Montoyo. This was, I thought, a rather unprecedented move because the team was, yes, still in fourth place and 15 and a half games back of first in the American League East. But they were still ultimately four games over 500. They were 46 and 42. However, they'd lost nine of their last 11. Over four, not complete, but four seasons, the Toronto Blue Jays went 236 and 236 under Charlie Montoyo. In 2019, they went 67 and 95. In 2020, that was the pandemic year, 60 game season, 32 and 28. They lose in the wild card series to the Rays, two games to none. Last year, probably most years they're in the playoffs, especially with the expansion, but they finished 91 and 71, somehow finished fourth in the AL East. And again, that shows how good the AL East is this year. The Baltimore Orioles won to get to 500. They've won nine in a row, which is the longest winning streak they've had in 23 years. And so, and, that, and that's the worst team in the East. So I don't think this has so much to do with Charlie Montoyo as it does the rest of the division. The Blue Jays on the, this year were on pace to win 85 games, which frankly at that point might actually be enough to reach the postseason considering... We are the, the MLB has now expanded to an 18 or a 16. Well, hold on, six teams in the AL, six teams in the NL, a 12 team postseason. 85 wins might actually get you in with that extra wild card this year. So, you know, I, I don't quite understand the move, but sometimes there's some organizations that really need one coach to start to develop these players, and then one, or manager, one to be there to guide them into a winning organization. Now, I, I've said this a little bit, I, I think you could say this a little bit about Joe Torre, I think you could say it a little more about Steve Kerr, and those are some guys who just stepped into really good situations. They thrived and did great jobs, but kind of stepped into really good situations where Mark Jackson was there for the beginning of that 
Warrior core and got them to the playoffs, got them to the second round, but then he was let go because of, I, I still don't know what reason, and the same goes for Buck Showalter with the Yankees, where he took them to the playoffs and then he was let go, and then Steve Kerr and Joe Torre just, just stepped into really good spots. So whoever is, it takes the role for the Jays full-time is going to step into a really good position. I don't know if they, they will have the success of the Warriors of the last decade or the Yankees of the late 90s into the 2000s, but they have a very, very good, young, just dangerous lineup from Biggio to Guerrero to uh, Tasker Hernandez, Bobachet, uh, Kirk, number of really good ball players on that team. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that works out. And hopefully Charlie Montoyo gets a job somewhere else because he's been working in the game for, I think, like 25, 30 years, and this was his first managerial job in the bigs. So I hope somebody hires him because he's very deserve, very deserving. Big news here in the New York City metropolitan area. Keith Hernandez on Saturday had his number 17 retired by the New York Mets, becoming only the fourth Met player to have his number retired. The other three, pretty good company, Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver, Hall of Fame catcher Mike Piazza, and a great all-time pitcher in Jerry Kuzman. He's the seventh person to have his number retired by the Mets. So it includes those three guys, Hernandez, Casey Stengel, who managed the organization for the first couple of years. Gil Hodges, who was their World Series winning manager in 1969, was taken away from us too soon and was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. And, of course, Jackie Robinson, whose number 42 is retired league-wide. He's also only the ninth person overall to be honored by the organization with some sort of... It's not te technically a banner but with some sort of structure up in the, the rafters of, the, uh, of City Field. So all the guys I've just mentioned, including Hernandez, plus William Shea, who was the lawyer who helped put together a lot of the teams for the Continental League, a league that never formed, but that pretty much forced the MLB into expanding and, and bringing the Mets to New York, and Ralph Kiner, who was already a Hall of Fame player with the Pittsburgh Pirates over 10 years, great all-time slugger, but was for so many years one of the great voices of the New York Mets. So th that's a huge honor for Keith Hernandez. He played six and a half seasons with the Mets. He actually played more years in St. Louis. Played 17 years overall, won 11 gold gloves over 17 years. He actually had played nine and a half years in St. Louis, later one year with Cleveland, won a pair of Silver Slugger awards. He is argued by many to be the greatest defensive first baseman ever, and that is supplemented by decent offensive numbers, 162 home runs, was never a huge power hitter, 1,071 RBIs, 1,124 runs, a 296 career batting average, a 384 on-base percentage, the 1979 co National League MVP award, or the National League MVP award, which he won alongside Hall of Famer Willie Stargell. I believe they're the only players to win an MLB MVP award together. He also won the MLB batting title, not just the NL batting title, but the league-wide batting title in 1979, hitting 344. 
and he won two World Series titles, one with the Cardinals in 1982, one with the Mets in 1986. This was a guy who did not anticipate or, or did not want to be traded to the Mets. The Cardinals had won the World Series the year before, and he was a crucial part of that team, did not want to be traded to the Mets. He, I did not realize, I believe Gary Cohen said this, that apparently at the time... He was, he was traded in the middle of the 1983 season. At the time, he had the option, I guess as a veteran, to demand a trade at the end of that season to some other organization, whether the Cardinals or otherwise. But the Mets talked him out of it. Lo and behold, it was a great move. He finished top 10 in MVP voting in each of his first three full seasons with the Mets. He finished second in 1984, and he finished fourth in 1986 when they won the World Series. He hit a two-run single that I did not realize how important that actually was. Some people forget that the 1986 World Series, they think primarily of the whole situation with Bill Buckner, for which he should not be blamed you know, in general, but nearly as much as you know, guys like Calvin Schiraldi or something like that, but... People forget that there was a Game 7. Red Sox still could have won. The Red Sox also had a 3-0 lead in Game 7. I didn't realize how late it was. It was the 6th inning. They still had a 3-0 lead in the 6th inning of Game 7, and Keith Hernandez hit a 2-run single to get them on the board at 3-2. That cut the Red Sox lead to 3-2. They would go on to tie the game in that 6th inning. They would score 8 total runs in the 6th, 7th, and 8th inning combined, and defeat the Red Sox 8-5 to win the World Series for only the second time in their history and the most recent time in Mets history. Keith Hernandez is a guy who I think does belong in the Hall of Fame. I think eventually he will get there, hopefully soon. He is also a very entertaining... We are so fortunate to have a, a group of Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, and Ron Darling in the SNY booth, and to get to hear them if you live in this area... And I can also say, you know, on top of that, the I've actually met Gary Cohn because he is the voice of AM radio for, he is the voice of Seton Hall basketball for AM radio. And I got to meet him, I, I spoke with him briefly, actually at the press box at Yankee Stadium, I got to help out with my, my friend, our family friend, the aforementioned late Ed Lucas. And I actually, I think the Yankees were playing the Mets and Gary Cohn was actually next to me in the commissary. So that was one thing that was pretty cool. I don't remember if we spoke or not. But then he also spoke to me briefly at Dunkin' Donuts Center in Providence when I was getting ready to call a Seton Hall-Providence game, as was he. So that was something pretty cool. But I, I am, uh, we are very fortunate to have that grouping, Keith Hernandez included. And I will also say that the Mets, for an organization 60 years old, does not have a lot of retired numbers, especially for the success that they have had. I know people criticize the Yankees and say, oh, they have too many retired numbers, which, you know, I get it, but that also, the Yankees are also that successful in organization. Same goes with the Montreal Canadiens, Boston Celtics, the LA Lakers, a lot of organizations like that. But I think this opens the door, this Keith Hernandez retirement, for a number of players and maybe even managers to have their numbers retired by the New York Mets. It was something we did not see much 
with previous ownership, there are, or at least the, the most recent ownership prior to Steve Cohen, there's a lot of logistics that go into it, but I think this opens the door for number retirements for a number of players, including, but not limited to, Gary Carter, Hall of Famer, spent more of his career at the Montreal Expos, was a huge part of the Mets organization. Daryl Strawberry, biggest slugger on that team. Doc Gooden, who had one of the best seasons ever in 1985 and was undoubtedly the Mets' ace. John Franco, who has over 400 career saves, is a New York native and spent, I think, 15 years with the Mets. David Wright, a career Met who is their leader in a number of categories and was their captain. Ed Cranepool, who I think was a career Met. If not, he at least was a an, orig- an original Met with the 1962 team and leads the organiza- also leads the organization in a, in a number of categories. And I would also say perhaps... Tug McGraw, who was the closer for the Mets for their 1969 team, and I believe their 73 pennant winning team. So really just a, a number of things that can be a number of people who can still be honored. That's not even mentioning guys like you know Bobby Valentine or, or Davey Johnson or maybe even Terry Collins. So that, that's, you know, there are another a number of other great players. Howard Johnson, Jose Reyes, not, not necessarily guys who should have their numbers retired, but guys who could be honored by the organization. And there's one last thing I want to discuss this week, and that is Wimbledon. So if you're international, if you're from across the pond, don't worry. I did I did watch quite a bit of Wimbledon. At least I, I watched quite a bit of the final. I didn't watch all of it, but I, I did pay some attention. I do really enjoy tennis. I just don't, don't get around to watching it as much. But uh, big news, Novak Djokovic wins the gentleman's title at Wimbledon. I had to be somewhere, actually. I, I left, I think, in the middle, late in the fourth set, but or, or late in the, or I, yeah, I left late in the fourth set, but I thought the turning point was really in the third set, where I can't remember if it was 3-2 or 3-3, three, three, but Djokovic rebounded from 40-love in that game to really turn the tide. I thought this was a, I thought that was the turning point. It was one set apiece. Djokovic made a remarkable comeback, and Nick Kyrgios, a guy who has been a controversial player in this tournament, and a controversial player in the sport in general, I did not, this was his, I've never really liked this term, but people still use it apparently, so I guess I can, uh, coming out party, I suppose, but Nick Kyrgios was very, very agitated throughout this turn. And not just agitated, you know, some people... Agitated, I think, speaks to more of a passive sense. Nick Kyrgios was just angry in this final in particular, was... speak Spoke very... And look, I know we've said that, you know, we, we see that in guys in the past like Jimmy Connors and you know, John McEnroe, even Serena Williams... Perhaps, but even John McEnroe has come out and criticized his behavior. And I would say Kyrgios has also been accused of assault in his native Australia against, I believe, against his girlfriend. And so it's, I mean, it's McEnroe, I don't think, had the off field, off court problems that, that Kyrgios has had. But I don't know, and I've said this about some people in particular, but 
some athletes in particular, but I don't know if I've ever seen anyone complain or, or complain wrongfully as much as Nick Kyrgios did on that court, especially in the final. And I don't, I think he only has, I think he only has himself to blame. I thought, blame, I thought it was a, I mean, tennis is a sport where I don't know how much the umpire really has to do with the outcome. Where it's, you know, I'd say baseball, it doesn't really happen as much anymore, except for within the strike zone. Football, the calls are usually pretty good. Basketball, it's very, basketball, I think, is the toughest sport to officiate. And hockey, I would say, it's at times very inconsistent. There have been some calls in the Stanley Cup playoffs that have, have been, that have really changed things completely. I feel like tennis, I don't know how an official can actually make that big a difference and can really swing the tide of a match one way or the other. And and and, if, and even if so, definitely not the way Kyrgios thinks. But Djokovic wins, he cuts Nadal's lead to one in terms of all-time major Grand Slam victories. Nadal now with 22, Djokovic with 21, Federer with 20. Rafael Nadal actually dropped out of the Wimbledon semifinals because of, a, because of an abdominal tear, which allowed Kyrgios to reach the final in the first place. And for the ladies' tournament, Elena Rabakina defeats Anz Javer after dropping the first set. And it's funny, I, I did not watch this, uh, the final of the, of the ladies' tournament, but I was wondering the significance. I think I got it from ESPN. I think it said Rabakina rebounds from losing the, losing the first set to to win the tournament. And then I totally forgot. I had forgotten. I was like, what's the significance of, you know, losing one set? Okay. You got to win three out of the next four. And then I'd forgotten that in the ladies tournament in ladies tennis, tennis, it's best two out of three. So, uh, Rabakina came back from down one set to none against Anjabur to claim her first grand slam, defeat her two sets to one, let alone her first Wimbledon. She is only 23 years old. And she improves to 21 and 12 for her career. This comes against a player who is five years her senior, and who now has only one more singles title than she does. Well, that does it for this week. I thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your time, and we will see you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.